Why do bad things happen to good people? No idea. Um, I don't know. Wow, that's an interesting question. I don't know. I, I can't answer that question. <laughs> this is the way it is. This is the way the world's run. I really don't think I, I have any philosophy to answer that, actually. That's one of the mysteries of the world. There's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just the ebb and flow of life. Why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, I guess they're unlucky. Bad things happen just out of uh, coincidence and... Uh, Part of life. It's a life process. Just uh, the way life is. Probably goes all the way back to the garden. <laughs> it's human nature. There has to be a balance in the world. It's the yin and the yang. Good people need to go through obstacles in their lives to achieve what they want. So they have some bad things happen to them they have to get through it. You almost have to, it's almost a necessary evil. Something bad has to happen to you in order for you to really value the good things that come. The world's not perfect, so we're going to be affected by things that the world throws at us, I guess. And then hopefully, you know, when the bad things come, you can take it in stride, knowing that surely the yin and the yang will always balance itself. Just because things are bad today doesn't mean that they'll continue to be that way. It seems real unfair, and um, I would like to think that karma at some point would step in and put a halt to it. I don't think that God has like picked people out to like suffer, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, but I do believe that he has a plan. I don't know if uh, God allows things to happen, I think just, things just happen. Things happen in more of a nature kind of way, and maybe God doesn't condone these things. Maybe they happen without God's intervention. God is in control of everything, uh, and uh, you know, events happen and things come into people's lives, but that doesn't mean that it's bad. So we determine what, what's good and bad. God is all-loving, and that's what everyone teaches, so there cannot be a correct answer why he allows suffering. Bad things allow um, people to realize how good God is, I guess. There's a blueprint to life called the Holy Bible, and when you don't follow the blueprint of life, which is the Word of God, things bound to go wrong. You know, look at Job, trials of Job. Uh, God allowed... Uh, his protection to be lifted and uh, then he was subjected. No matter what we go through, a head injury, a divorce, a, a flunking out of college, anything, no matter what we go through, it makes it all relative to what Christ went through on the cross. Why do bad things happen to good people? 1981, there was a book, best-selling book that came out. It was written by Rabbi Harold Kushner, and it was called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And he wrote this book following the death of his son from progenia, which is a disease that causes rapid aging of the body and, and then early death. And in his book, Kushner addresses this age-old question of why. Why, if the universe was created and is governed by a God who is good and has a loving nature, then why is there so much suffering? Why is there so much pain? Well, Kushner answers this by essentially saying that, well, God arranged the universe in such a way that he cannot solve all its dilemmas. Basically says he's not in control of it all, but that he also has a loving or caring nature and he just suffers alongside us. This book really doesn't use a biblical view of God. He tries to use his own human wisdom, his own human aptitude and logic to find an answer to this question. We know that doesn't work. There's some other things I'd like to break down really about that question is, is that 
bad things happen to good people. And the Bible really paints a different picture about human nature, doesn't it? In Romans chapter 3, verse 10, it says that there's no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. And later on in the chapter, in verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And even Jesus, when referred to as a good teacher in Mark chapter 10, said, There is no one good except God alone. See, since the fall of mankind, we are all born with a sin nature. We all have it. It's not too hard to find if you even just look at my two-year-old. And it's Ella's birthday today, so a little golf clap for Ella and her birthday. And thank goodness we're celebrating today, not for the two-year-old, but the mom and dad who survived the two years. But she is just a wonderful child. Yet she has a sin nature. And, and we've been dealing with this just recently. She has got into scratching and hitting. And if your child has been in the nursery, you might have been subjected to it. So you might want to run out there real quick because she's in there and grab your child. Well, no, I, I think we've got it somewhat under control because we taught her that that is wrong and you're not supposed to do that. And so when she does hurt someone, of course, we we tell her to apologize. And so she's kind of put these two things together in a weird, twisted sort of way now. And she inflicts it mostly on her brother and her sister on long car trips, of course. And so she'll, whoever has to sit next to her gets inflicted with this, and she'll come up to him and she'll hit him. And then she'll go, I'm oh, sorry, Andy. <laughs> or she'll go to Maddie. I'm huh? oh, sorry, Jojo. So we're just going, oh my goodness. But it's not too hard to see that we don't have to teach her to scrap and bite and hit. She just does it. I mean, no one taught her to do that. She's just doing that. That's innate. That's in her own flesh. So needless to say, we are not good people. I mean, we may have amazing acts of kindness and goodness sometimes in our life, but by and large, we are people that think about ourselves Far too often, I know I do. Another part of this question that Kushner asks that's still troubling is is this contrast between the two natures of God, the contrast between that He is sovereign, that He is in control of all things, yet He is merciful, and He is kind, and He is loving. We know that God has ordained all of our days when we have yet lived one of the. God is the only one that is in control of our life and the days we will have on this earth. He is the only one. Satan has no power over how many days we are to live. God is completely in control of that. We also know in the Bible it says throughout, and even that guy up on the video, we know, we teach that God is love. God is love. He's a loving God, and he loves his creation. And so this dilemma that Kushner brings up between these two characteristics of God is is a tough one. But instead of going to the Bible to answer that, Kushner went to his own mental aptitude, his own logic. And as we saw in that video, that's what a lot of people do. They wrestle with that in their own mind, trying to figure out in their own mind, how can that be? How can God be in control and yet loving? And so... Many people, like Kushner, they choose one or the other, right? They choose one of the characteristics over the other, and of course they choose that God is love. 
He's definitely love, and that's just in our nature to say, God is definitely love. So, so they abandon the other, right? They say, well, he just must not be in control then. He must be like, I mean, Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, they believed in theism. They believed that God created the world, created the universe, and then just took off. He just bailed out. He created it all, and now he's on some corner of the universe, kicking back, relaxing on a beach, just letting evil take its process until we destroy each other and wipe each other out. And then he'll just show up again, right, and fix it all and do it all over again, right? Some people have chosen that God really isn't in control of their life. They've denied the sovereignty of God. As believers, anytime we go through trials, we do the same thing. We, we question God's character. We question our faith. We question our belief. We struggle with unbelief. We even question the nearness of God. God, why are you so distant? God, why are you so silent? We persistently pray that God would alleviate from these trials, yet they still remain. This is a common question throughout the Bible. We see Job ask this question in Job chapter 13. He says, Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? And the Psalms obviously are filled with these questions. In Psalm chapter 10 it says, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In Psalm 44 it says, Why do you hide your face and forget your affliction and our oppression? King David, who was a man after God's own heart, even asked, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And even Jesus himself on the cross asked, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Another valid question we ask during trials is, Why does it seem that the righteous suffer, yet the wicked prosper? This is asked many times throughout Scripture by Job and in the Psalms and the Proverbs, and we're going to go look at those answers to those questions in the Bible today. The Bible will bring us back to the true character of God, and, and though we think that because all these bad things are happening, that somehow this changes God's character. I know even myself, I question God's character when bad things happen. As Gary said, that God's character is the same today, yesterday, and forever. It never changes. It's unchangeable. God is merciful and loving. He is in control of the whole universe. He is not distant. In fact, we'll find that he's very near during trials and during our suffering. In fact, we see in the Psalms, if you read later on in the Psalms, most of the psalmists will come full circle. They'll ask these difficult, struggling questions, and then later on, they'll provide answers for them. In Psalm 119, it says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. And even Job, after all his whining and complaining about the condition that he was in, he said, Though God would slay me, Though God would slay me, I will trust in him. And that is essentially really the heart of the issue is, do you trust God? Do you believe in him? Do you believe in his character? Do you believe that he is good, that he is loving, and that he is in control? Well, today we are going to see that the Bible has no shortage of examples of those who have gone through pain and trials and suffering in their life. We start even in the beginning from Adam and Eve. 
We know the pains and suffering and trials of them. They had rebellious children, so rebellious that one child killed the other. We know the trials of Moses that he went through with the nation of Israel walking through the wilderness. The trials of David with Saul and his own children. The trials of Job we'll look at in a lot of detail today. And also Christ. We know that Christ suffered many trials during his life. And another man that went through numerous sufferings and trials was the Apostle Paul. And we see this no better than in the second letter he wrote to the church in Corinth. We see that this letter is going to be the most personally revealing of everything that Paul ever wrote. Second Corinthians will reveal Paul's humility, his weakness, his inadequacy, and his reluctance to defend himself against attackers, against these false prophets. So I'm so excited about this time in Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians has got such rich, deep passages in it. In fact, it's got some of my favorite ones. And next week, when we dig into the first 11 verses, it's probably one of Sue and our theme verses about comfort. And they just are throughout this whole book. It's going to be a great, exciting time as we go through this book. Well, around a year ago, we started the first letter to the church in Corinth. And 1 Corinthians is a great book. It was a book with deep, rich meaning and theology, the resurrection and grace and forgiveness and redemption as well as it addressed practical issues like elevating pastors or leaders above Christ, like marriage, like spiritual gifts and body life dynamics. Well, Second Corinthians will continue on with the deep, rich truths of theology. Second Corinthians will look at the new covenant, will look at the ministry of reconciliation. We'll get to look back again about what our heavenly body will be like. And like no other, it talks about substitutionary atonement. That's a big word, but basically it's gonna, we're going to look into what Christ did for us on the cross and how he took our place and bore the wrath of God upon himself instead of for us. And also we'll discuss very practical issues like giving and stewardship and relating to unbelievers. And then it will end with the whole process of sanctification of becoming holy and becoming like Christ. So as we know from our study in 1 Corinthians that Paul started this church in the town of Corinth, and the town of Corinth was like modern-day Las Vegas. It was immoral, and they were a very prideful people. And he started this church, first he went to the synagogue, and later they booted him out. The Jews didn't like him anymore because he's preaching Christ, of course, and not the law. And so he went right next door converted the leader of the synagogue who lived right next door, and they started their church right next door in a house church to the synagogue. And he was there around 18 months and built the church up and then went on to Ephesus. And then when he was in Ephesus, he heard about some serious problems that had arose in the church. And so he sent Timothy which, to Corinth which, and took along with him the letter, the first letter to the church in Corinth. And that was around late 55 A.D. Unfortunately, matters grew worse, and Paul had to make a painful visit, and we'll hear about that in, in the letter, to Corinth to, to confront what he saw were false apostles, and that these were men that rose up against Paul, and they're false apostles or prophets. 
And so he had to confront these people. And we find out that this visit did not go well. In fact, while he was there, this was probably the lowest point for Paul. While he was there, he confronted these false apostles, and yet the church body did not come around him, did not defend him. And so it was a low, low point in Paul's life. And so he left Corinth, and he was deeply hurt by this, and so he wrote what is called the severe letter, which we don't have. And he had Timothy send this out and go back to Corinth with the severe letter. And then he waited for the response, and he was in great distress, as we know, waiting for the response. But he finally got a good report back from Timothy that the church body had repented of what they'd done. They repented of putting their allegiance to these false prophets and now put their allegiance back to Christ and and came back around Paul. And so it's with this point that Paul writes this letter of 2 Corinthians. And this is around late 56 A.D. that he wrote this letter. Now the main theme of 2 Corinthians is really going to be this defense of Paul's apostleship. We'll see that layered throughout, especially in chapters 4 and later on in chapters 10 through 12, that he defends his apostleship. Even though they've repented and turned, he's still worried about lingerings of this. So he really emphasizes this, and you'll see it throughout the whole book, is his defense of his apostleship. We also see in this letter that Paul shows deep concern for his flock, both for their spiritual growth and for spiritual safety. Paul also explains his change of plans, so he said he was going to come back to Corinth, but he didn't allow. He wasn't able to bring this letter back. So he explains his change of plans, and we'll see that here shortly in chapter two. And then he encourages the church to forgive and restore a member that he directed possibly to, for discipline. If you remember in chapter five of First Corinthians, and then he encourages the church to share in a special relief offering he was taken up for the needy saints in Judea and Jerusalem, and. It's, it's probably some of the best scripture and, and teaching there is on giving and stewardship in the Bible in chapters 8 and 9. And I believe that one of the overarching themes that we're going to look at in the first seven chapters is going to be comfort. It's going to be talking about comfort, and it starts off, and it'll be right in the first verses, that he will talk about comfort. And though many members of the church had turned their back on Paul and followed these false apostles, Paul took comfort in knowing God intimately. He had an intimate relationship with God. He knew God's character and he trusted in that. And he knew the God of all comfort. And though he was attacked and though he went through probably the lowest points in his ministry, he drew upon the God of all comfort. He drew his strength. While he is weak, God is strong. So we'll see him look into the character of God and and his comfort. As I mentioned before, Paul is very open with the church in Corinth about his trials and his suffering. And Paul went through a lot of trials and suffering for the furtherance of the gospel. Many people opposed him. Church in Corinth opposed him, and he's usually the Jews. He started with the Jews. He would preach the gospel to the Jews, and the Jews were horrible to him. They would beat him. They would stone him. They would throw him in jail. And those sufferings that Paul went through are described in detail in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. So we'll be able to enter into Paul's suffering and Paul's trials and see what he went through in his persecution and for the furtherance of the gospel, not only physical, but just spiritual, the anguish that he went through. I know many people in this body are suffering. 
I know there's people suffering financial difficulties. I mean, some of us in thousands of dollars of debt, others in tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. There are people in this body that are physically suffering from disabilities, from illnesses, and we know Jan Cooper suffering from cancer. I know there are those in this body that are suffering spiritually from a spouse maybe that does not know the Lord or children that are rebellious and gone their own way and gone in their own lifestyle and are not choosing to, not only to choosing to follow God, they're not even choosing to follow their parents and live in their own way. So this body knows suffering. So that's why I wanted to spend some time today to address this question that I brought up at the beginning of the time. Why does a God who's loving and merciful and in control of all things, why does he allow these bad things to happen? This is obviously a question that happened six years ago after 9-11. I mean, I even asked this myself just a month ago after we heard the news about Chad Harkis. God, why would you allow that? Why would you allow this precious boy to die? This is a foundational question that I want to spend some time on today as we as we go through this book. We need to really understand that because that will be a theme throughout. And ultimately is going to boil down to God's character. We question God's character in light of circumstances in our life, in light of the events of the world. But we know that God does not change. His character does not change. And so we need to look back to God's word and really affirm ourselves into God's character. And we're going to look at today why these things happen and especially why does these things happen to believers that those, the righteous, those who follow Christ, why do these bad things happen? And so today we're going to look at those things and I pose to you that three different reasons why and and the next thing I'm going to say, uh, I kind of want to position a little bit because when I'm going to say it, you know, I may see some squirming in the seat and you may want to even leave. So I'm going to say it, but I want you to stick with me and hear me through it. But the truth of why God puts us through bad things, and we'll see in Scripture, is that God tests us. He puts us to the test. And he puts us to the test in different ways. He will test our faith, he will test our obedience, and he will test our love. In Proverbs chapter 17, it says, The Lord tests our heart. And for King Hezekiah in Second Chronicles, it says that God tested King Hezekiah. God left him, Hezekiah, alone only to test him, that he might know all that was in his heart. So today we're going to look at these areas of testing and pray that God would teach us through us. So let's pray. Father God, Lord, I thank you for this time in the word. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak in and through your word. Speak in and through me as I open up this time and and we try to dig into this age-old question of why. Why, God, would you allow these bad things to happen? Why would you allow us to go through pain and trial and suffering in our life? We know, Lord, that you are loving and merciful and compassionate and you pour those out upon us when we need it. And Lord, I pray that you'd pour that out upon us today, though we're going to go through some hard scripture. 
We're going to go through some hard lessons that I pray that you'd speak to us through those lessons and that you would talk and speak into our heart for any of us here that are going through trials and suffering, that you'd speak into our heart and the God of all comfort would come alongside us and comfort us through those trials and that we would come out as gold, as pure gold. So Lord, I just give this time to you and pray these things in your precious name. Amen. All right. Well, we're going to look at three of these areas of testing. And the first area we're going to look at is that of testing of our faith. God uses trials to test our faith and dependency on him and not on ourselves. This is really a theme verse for Sue and I is in James chapter 1. James chapter 1 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And so here we see in this scripture, it says, not if you go through trials, right? But when you go through trials. So believer, if you're a follower of Christ, you will go through trials. I guarantee it. Right? You guys hear the men's warehouse guy come out there? Guarantee it. We will. We're going to go through trials in our life. As believers, we're going to go through trials. It's not if, it's when. And so when these trials come, this says that this will be a testing of our faith. Why does God test our faith? He wants to build into our character. Romans chapter 5 continues with this theme and says, And also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. So God really cares much more about our character than our what? Our comfort. He cares more about our character than our comfort. And so he's going to build into our character through these trials and suffering to see what we're made at. You probably heard the theme, no pain, no gain. All right. You hear that a lot in, in athletics. If you don't go through the pains of, of trying and, and the training, you're not going to see the gain. And I know an example of that is Lance Armstrong. I probably use him way too much. I should, but he just comes to mind for some reason. But Lance Armstrong, when, in his younger days, he was a great athlete, yet he never did anything really incredible. Yet he was stricken with cancer, and he overcame that obstacle of having cancer, and it went on to not only complete Tour de France's, but win seven Tour de France's. I mean, before that, he was just an average athlete. You know, he was making, doing some stuff, but nothing great. But when he went through the pain and trials and suffering, he reached far higher levels. And another example of this, obviously, is Job. Job went through amazing trials and suffering. We know the story of Job that he was a man that was blameless. He was a man that had much wealth. He had a huge estate. He had livestock, camels. The description is elaborate of what Job had, just an incredible life. And yet God pulled his protection from him and let Satan have his way with Job. And Job was stripped of everything. He was stripped of all his possessions. His estate was stripped, taken from him. His children were taken from him. And then the last part, Satan inflicted him with boils and all over his body. So Job knew pain and suffering. He knew trials. And if you read through the book of Job, he has his friends come along and they try to do the same thing that Harold Kushner did. They try to figure this out. Why? Why, Job, why are you getting 
Why is God picking on you? Why is he doing all these things to you? And so his friends keep spewing out all this worldly logic of trying to figure out why this is happening to Job. And Job enters into it a lot. He starts complaining and not feeling so good about it either. But in chapter 23, I think this is kind of the theme verse for Job's life. Chapter 23, verse 10, Job says this. He says, But God, he knows the way that I take. He knows the way that I take. He knew that I would go through these pain and suffering and trials. God knows it. He oversaw it. And he knows when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. After the testing, Job knew if he hung in there with God, he would come forth as gold. Now, I worked in the mining industry. I was an exploration geologist right out of college. And as an exploration geologist, they send you to the boonies, right? And where better place to the boonies in the United States than Nevada? So I get to go to Nevada. Oh, terrible place. I never want to go back. But went out to the boonies in the desert of Nevada to search for gold, right? There's gold in them, our hills. So that's what my job was, to go out there and look for it. Except the problem is the old miners got all the gold you could see. So I was going around looking for the gold maybe that was left behind. And so I'd go through these hills and valleys and I'd look for places where the magma came up and came into the base rock and you could see places where that happened. But the problem is you couldn't see the gold. I didn't see any gold that whole summer. It was all gone. Because the gold is now microscopic. It's very tiny. It's in the rock. Most of this gold had like .004 ounces of gold per ton. I mean, barely anything. But the industry now, the gold was so precious that they would mine that. They would dig that up and they would have to process it. And so the process of mining is to take all these tons of gold and to break it all down and to turn it into fine powder and then to stick it in cyanide. And they'd stick it in these cyanide leeches and it would leach the gold out. Problem is it would leach all these other metals out too and they'd refine that and pull all these metals off. And they would have a mixture of all these metals from this leech. And then from that, then it would go to the fire before it would turn and become gold. They would melt it down so they would get the gold. This is also talked about in, in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Peter is addressing those Christians that are going through pain and trials and suffering in Rome. And he says, in this, your faith or your salvation, you genuinely rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When we are tested, we have two choices to make. We can choose to try to do it on our own and try to make sense of it on our own in our own flesh and to get through it on our own. Or we can choose to let God do it. And many of you have heard of the refiner's fire. And so when we go through these trials and we allow God to work through us, He's going to refine us. As I talked about with gold, gold has to go through the fire. Gold has to go through high temperatures 
to be brought out. The pure gold has to go through that highest temperature so it can be brought out as pure. And that is the reason why God puts us through these trials, is to test our faith so that we may come through as pure gold. Well, another reason why God tests us is because he wants to test our obedience. He wants to test our obedience. So when we willfully disobey God, he will discipline us. And as I talked about before in Psalm 119, it says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statues. So the psalmist saw it as good that he was afflicted. He saw it was good that he had to go through these trials because he saw it as a form of obedience to going back to God's word, to obeying his statues. Hebrews puts it in a great way. If you would, turn with me to Hebrews Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. And starting in, really in chapter 12, verse 4, it says, And you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, and you're striving against sin. So he's admonishing, and this book is admonishing the believers that they have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. So they have not been obedient. And I ask myself that all the time when I'm disobedient. Have I resisted to the point of shedding blood? I rarely go even close to that point. It goes on to say in verse 5, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. This is from Proverbs. It says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who are being trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So God disciplines us. He disciplines us for our own good. There are consequences to our sin, right? If we choose to sin, if we choose to disobey, then there are going to be consequences. Sometimes these consequences come as physical pain. I know one time when I had known some disobedience in my life, I hadn't confessed to God, and, and I was working on my bike, and it was hanging up, and all of a sudden the bike came down and gouged my finger, and blood was gushing all over, and I knew what happened. <laughs> I just got disciplined. You know, kids get disciplined. We have to discipline our kids, and they get the consequences of sin when they get that spanking. They get that right away. For us as adults, it comes differently. It comes in different ways. And sometimes it may not come as physical pain. Many times it comes as frustration in our life. We're frustrated. We, maybe there's strife between us and our wife or us and our kids. Or maybe things are just not going well in our job. Or maybe, I know for me, maybe my leisure time is getting cut out. 
You know, I want to go on a bike ride and get all my bike stuff ready and uh, psh, flat. Oh, for gosh, I changed my flat. Go out there, psh, another flat. Okay, uh, see what's happening here. Sometimes God uses different ways to discipline us, to get our attention, to come back to Him and to be in obedience and confess our sin to Him and make us right with Him. So He'll use things in our life. It doesn't seem pleasant at the time, but later it produces righteousness and peace in our lives. Isn't it true when we are disobedient that we just feel horrible? When we're in sin, we just don't feel right. It feels just terrible. But when we're in obedience, we feel that peaceful, wonderful feeling of closeness to God. We feel that intimacy. When we're in disobedience, we feel that distance. We feel God isn't near and feel something isn't right. But when we are in obedience, it's such a wonderful place to be. God uses trials sometimes in our lives to discipline us, to bring us back to obedience to Him. Another thing that God does, the purpose of our trials, is really to test our love for Him. Who do you love? That's what God asks. Do you love the world or do you love the Lord? See, trials and tribulations in our life will really reveal the priorities or the desires of our heart. I know when I'm struggling with obedience and have been afflicted with consequences, I always need to do a heart check. I need to check my heart and say, God, you know, do I love the world more than I love you? Because I'm showing, my actions are showing I love the world. I love the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life, and I enter into this disobedience. I'm showing my actions are just not showing I love you. And I need to do a heart check when I'm going through these things. Jesus said that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. Mark chapter 12. And Jesus asked Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? He asks us that every day. Do we love him? Do we love God? He asked Peter that three times because he wanted to know for sure that he loved him more than the world. Because if he loved the world more, he would never be able to be an apostle to further the gospel, to take it out to the world. He would never be able to shepherd the believers. He would never be able to do the things that Peter did. He wanted to know, first and foremost, did he love Jesus more than anything? See, Jesus wants us to love him more than even our own parents, our own brothers and sisters, our own children, and even ourselves. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus told a large crowd that if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. God wants your full heart. He wants your full love. He wants nothing else but that. He's a jealous God that wants all your heart and devotion for Him and Him alone. 
So I ask you today, do you love him? Or do you love yourself more? And that comes forth in the way we live, in our actions, in our life. And Someone in the Bible, an example, who went and was put to the test of God's love, whether he loved God, whether he obeyed God, is Abraham. Abraham was put to a test I hope I'll never be put to. Abraham was put to the test of sacrificing his own son, his one and only son. It didn't make sense to Abraham at all. A hundred-year-old man with the only one legitimate son, the, the son that would carry on his heritage, his inheritance, the only one that would come and take the nation of Israel, the blessed nation of God. That's, it was all resting on Isaac, his one son. And yet God had told him to do something that just didn't make sense, to sacrifice his one and only son. What an act of obedience that must have been for him. An act of love for God, even when it doesn't make sense. And we're asked many times to obey God and to love God and to follow Him in these trials and tribulations and things that go through our lives and just to trust in Him when it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. God, if you're in control, why don't you take this trial away? Why don't you alleviate it from us? We're asked to trust in Him and to follow Him and to love and obey Him when it doesn't make sense. The thing is that we have to realize in God's perspective on this all. We are in our trial and that's about all we can see, right? We are in this world and that's all we can see is what we're dealing with. We've got to recognize that God sees the big picture. God sees the beginning in the end, and he sees everything in between. He sees all the multiple layers that we cannot even fathom to understand. And we need to trust God and his character that he is in control of all these things and working them out for good. I think the last reason why God puts us through trials is to wean us of the world. To wean us away from the world and to point us to heaven. I mean, isn't this so true? If our life is going well... If we've got a good job, got a lot of money, got a nice house, the kids are doing fine, marriage is great, we don't need God. We're probably not even thinking of heaven because our life is so good here on earth. Why, why do I need God? Why do I even want to look towards heaven? Things are going great here. So God brings along trials and suffering to point us to heaven. I mean, this is why the church in the third world is probably doing so well. Why they think of heaven so often is because they are definitely not focused on the world. They're going through trials and persecution and suffering. I mean, martyrdom in the third world church is commonplace. They're looking not at this world. They're looking towards heaven. Later on in Romans chapter 5, I talked about those first verses that... that, that Our character produces finally hope. And in the end, in chapter 5, verse 5, it says, And hope does not disappoint because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. See, those who hope in heaven will never be disappointed in this life. And suffering is a first step in producing that hope. Paul expressed this hope when he wrote to the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians, when In chapter 4, verse 17 through 18, he says this, 
For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. For we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. What have you placed your hope in? Do you place your hope in your job? Do you place your hope in your career, your family? Do you place your hope in your money, your retirement? What do you place your hope in? Do you place your hope in that as what is seen or what is unseen? I'm going to conclude here and think we really kind of fall into different places that some of us, you know, maybe a place where life is easy. We maybe aren't going through many trials in our life right now. I encourage you, if you're in that place where life is good and life is easy right now, to prepare for the fire. Prepare yourself for the fire. Get into God's Word. Be intimately close to Him. Because that verse in James says, not if trials come, but when trials come. So I encourage you to prepare for the fire. Draw near to God. And I know there are many here that are in trials. They're in trials right now, in difficulties and suffering. My encouragement to you is to hang in there. Don't give up. There are many saints around you that have gone through similar trials. And so be there praying with each other. And we'll look into next week about how the God of all comfort who comforts those who went through trials are now to comfort others when they go through trials. And we'll look into some great verses next week about comfort and how the body of Christ will work in coming along one another and comforting one another and using the power of the Holy Spirit, the great comforter, to comfort one another so that we too can say like Job did, they will come forth as gold. We'll persevere and be as gold. So stay tuned for that. And for those of you here that are maybe here for the first time and have been struggling with that question, whether you've been in trials or not, or you know people that are in trials, you're in the right place because Jesus knows those pains and sufferings that you're going through. And Jesus wants a relationship with you. He wants you to draw near to him. He said, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Maybe you're, you're feeling distance from God. Maybe that's why you're here today. I hope you can feel the nearness of God that He will draw near to you. If you draw near to Him, He will draw near to you. And He wants a relationship with you. He wants your obedience. And He wants you to confess your sins to Him and lay them at the feet of the cross so that you will know His grace and His mercy and His forgiveness. And you will know the peace that surpasses all understanding. You'll be close to the God and creator of the universe. I'm going to conclude with a video clip here. And this is about a man called Horatio Spatford. And Horatio Spatford wrote an amazing hymn called It Is Well With My Soul. And Horatio Spatford went through a life that was very similar to Job. So take a watch. Here's a man that was a good person. He was a leader in his church. 
He was a good friend of Dwight Moody, the Moody Bible Institute. He was an upstanding member of society. He loses his son. He loses all of his investments, everything, his life savings in the Great Chicago Fire. He sends his family out. They were actually going to Europe to be part of a crusade that these other Christian guys were doing. They wanted to be a part of it and everything. And what happens is he loses all of his, all four of his daughters died in the shipwreck. His wife writes, saved alone, what do I do? He sails back over to Europe to pick her up right over the spot in the ocean where his, his daughter sank, where the, sh- the ship was wrecked. He goes down, and here's his response to the tragedy. He goes down inside the, the ship into his quarters, and he writes this hymn that tells God, God, I'm good with you. It's well within my soul. It's well with my soul, Father God. All this tragedy happened, but you're still a good God, and I still trust you. And what happens is he goes back, he takes, takes his wife back to Chicago. They, they have two more daughters after this. He decides to move to Jerusalem to be closer to Jesus. See, his faith and his response wasn't just one of, I still praise you, God, but it was one of action. He moves to Jerusalem to start a, like a mission, a little settlement, a little colony over there so that he can meet the needs of the poor people in Jerusalem. And to this day, they still have a, 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 the original house in the old quarter of Jerusalem. It's called the Stafford Children's Center, still caring for the poor and run by Anna Lind, who is a direct descendant of Horatio Spafford. And see, this is just just an example of the response that we're supposed to have.